1: is writers on film the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bliesdell. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to James Peaty who is the writer and director of three short films um, and he is also a writer of comic books including the Doctor Who magazine, 2000 AD, Judge Dredd the magazine as well as Supergirl... Um, a Green Arrow and Justice League so there's a whole resume of interesting writing and I really wanted to talk to him because I had just seen uh, Thor Love and Thunder and I sort of wanted to get his take on the whole comic book Universe cinematic mashup, uh, and you will hear that we did, and we talked a, a, we talked, talked in depth about that, but also about popular Hollywood filmmaking. This conversation, I think, works very well as a. Um, sequel part of the franchise part of the writers on film cinematic universe with one of the first conversations I did uh, with Tom Schoen and actually I've done two conversations with Tom Schoen who wrote the book Blockbuster Um, uh, and it's an attempt to reappraise Blockbusters not as the sort of sell out destruction death of cinema anti-Scorsese, anti-New Hollywood sort of phenomena, but you know, on their own merits and, and so I think this conversation really goes well and I certainly felt that a lot of my assumptions were being pushed back on in this conversation. I'm I'm very happy to sort of reappraise my own position, talking to someone like James who really knows his stuff and has something of an insider's view as well of the comic book uh, um, industry I guess. Um this is also going to be part one of a two-part conversation because uh we have not in any way exhausted the possibilities so um you can expect a sequel (laughs) a sequel to this conversation as well as as with all good franchise cinema uh, we've left it open-ended and ready to uh ready to carry on at a moment's notice um please remember if you enjoy the episode to like Subscribe, do all the things, leave reviews. That that that's apparently very helpful. Uh, you can find all these podcasts on YouTube, Apple, uh, Spotify. But you've already found me, so I guess, uh, I guess you're already here. Uh, before you do that, let's just go into the conversation.
0: Into 2000 AD, in particular. Oh, well, it's a kind of long and winding road. Um, Like yourself, I read it when I was younger. I sort of read it, I think, late 80s through to the mid-90s. And a lot of people lulled in the mid-90s if we go back and kind of go through the history of the the title. Um, But I was... So I'd read it when I was young and I was a a fan of the 2000 AD magazine. In particular, when it launched, um, in the I think nineteen ninety, around mm. before the Dread film, it was about. I think it was about nineteen ninety it launched. Um, I was a big reader with that, but I was a big reader of comics in general. Um, and I know I was, you know, as I got older, and I was a bit. I used to go to conventions a lot. As well. I used to go to the big UCAT convention in London. So I was sort of around all the kind of people who were working in comics and it was a very vibrant time. It was around, I think the first UKAC I went to was the summer, it was the September, October after the Batman movie had come out, the Tim Burton one. So it was like, it was a big deal all that. So I was kind of, I was about 14, I think, when I went to that con and I was sort of, it looked sort of like a feasible thing you could do. So it kind of maybe got, set me on a, on a dark and twisted path. So years later, I sort of joined a comics writers group through that run by the Comics Creators Guild and the Cartoon Art Trust, and I tried to get in 2000. I actually had a strip commissioned in the late late 90s, and I wrote a script, and then it was kind of <laughs> it was then uncommissioned by the incoming editor, and that was I think that was about 97, 98, and I come out. So I was quite young; I was in my early 20s, 20 even, maybe 21, 21 around then. And um, yeah, I I sort of like went ah, oh, I'm not, not going to do what work for 2000 AD Sodom. So I went away and I did other things for the next God, nearly 20, 20 plus year, 20 years. I think it was, if that was 97, I started working for the comic, I think in 2016, 2017. So I'd gone off and worked in other areas of comics during that time. So I worked for gay. Mm. My first published stuff was for DC Thompson in the late nineties, their football picture library titles. Um, um, so I wrote mm. football stories for a, a few months and then I went back and did my master's degree, then came out, started fiddling around and making films. But I actually, it was around 2002, I started selling stuff professionally. I was writing for Warhammer Monthly, for Games Workshop. And then I got some work at DC in the States. So I was doing, I did Green Arrow, mm. some Batman stuff. Some of it came out, some of it didn't. Um, it bit some for a while. I did various titles. And then I did a couple of little bits for Marvel, worked for Panini here in the UK, doing the Marvel UK. Stuff for a while, then it led me to kind of. And I kind of was out of comics for. A while. I was very con- much more concentrated on the, the film making, screenwriting. I had an agent. I was sort of thought, well, okay, that's maybe something that's I've done, and it's kind of come to an end. And then I, my daughter was born. I was about maybe about. She was about two or three. I was a bit awake again, <laughs> and I thought comics oh, no, would be quite good. I I was clearing out the room that used to be in my office, which is a bedroom which I'm in now. <laughs> found a load of stuff that i'd written you know and i hadn't really looked at any of it for a very long time and i thought well you know maybe i can try that again it's a good way of earning some extra money and you know i was and the thing about film as you would know is you know how long it takes to get anything going so the immediacy of comics is something that's really great so i kind of dipped a few toes into a few uh ponds and um I got some commissions, and then suddenly I was back doing it. And then probably that was about so that was about 2016, I think. And then I started working on Doctor Who for um, Titan Comics, and a lot of the one of the reasons I wanted to well I was approached to work on it, and then I, I mm. did work on it. And I was working with a lot of people from 2008, like a lot of artists, people like Ian Colbard who draws Brink, Rob Williams, Cy Spurrier, um I think. Al Ewing had moved on from Doctor at that point on the 11th Doctor but yeah I was so and people like um, Nick Abadzis was writer I'd really you know whose work I was really in, interested in when I was younger um still am because Nick is a very good writer and artist um so I kind of then thought well okay it can't be a huge leap to go to 2000 and 2000 he's still published and it's a month, weekly comic and they need strips and there's the magazine and it kind of was that I pitched a future shock and then was commissioned and then i did another one and then i did a thriller which is a three-part sort of thing and then suddenly i had a series commissioned and i've just finished that i've been doing that for five years that's just come to a conclusion so um always oh, in the middle of coming to an end and i had another series then then that was in the magazine which um which is just finished actually which i did which was um so it's been a so i've been really kind of working on the on 2000 and the magazine for i would say seriously full-on for five years yeah
1: it's so interesting when you're talking about it, that how, how often the uh, the film and the, the comics sort of co- cross over or collide. And is, it, is there something sort of intrinsic as well in in that? that? In the sense that as a writer of comic strips, you're writing, you're a script writer, and then an artist will take that over and interpret it. And as a writer of films, again, you're a script writer and you know, maybe a director will do it if you're not going to do it yourself.
0: Yeah, well, there's a lot. There is a lot of crossover between the disciplines, but they're all not maybe not maybe in the ways that you would think. I mean, I think, I mean, I always say I made, I did a few. As obviously, I said go if we sort of rewind. I went back to the late '90s. I'd done a few things for DC Thompson. right? And then from there, comics was in a very bad place from in the late '90s. It was very difficult. I mean, everything was contracting from. So from the late '80s, I know, it's where it was kind of boom time, the late '90s were like desolation. <laughs> um and it really was that they weren't rehiring people and there was a lot less opportunity and um as I said I went back to university and I started kind of fiddling around with with writing scripts you know film scripts short film scripts and I made a short film I think it was about 2001 so I did my master's I kind of end I did sort of like went through all that kind of process started thinking more about you know writing. I've been to I stopped was really out of comics for a while and then like even buying comics and then I did this um I, got, I had a, got quite friendly with a guy at college who was doing it on the film degree and we just made to make a film and I wrote a script and um we shot it and I the, but the thing the re, I always say this that the the best writing class I ever took was a week in an edit suite with the the, the crap I'd written <laughs> <laughs> um because obviously you learn all the things about you know, the thing about writing is like the way to do it is to do it, you know. So I was very lucky. Long oh, story how we got in there anyway. We had a week in an edit suite um with an editor. And, you know, I really learned about velocity and pace and, you know, when to enter a story, when to enter a scene, but not just when to enter a scene, but when to enter a story. Do you think is the beginning of your story really the beginning? Is this how you? And the kind of the kind of plasticity of editing mm. and film And we were just we were at the door this is digi beta so this is the beginning of kind of like digital filmmaking yep. really um, in a way that's affordable and kind of you know you can do something that's pretty good for no money which is kind of what we don't we did and I learned it's not I don't think it's a surprise I was get I started working professionally as a writer probably within nine months of doing that mm. and have never really stopped. Mm. Um, so yeah, I would, I mean that, I think, the, I think editorially when you're writing comics, it's, it's really important because what you, what you're doing is you're writing a script that an, an artist is going to make, you know, an artist is going to visualize and turn into a into, into the story, the artwork that you're going to see. But in many ways, what you're doing is you're choosing the cuts You in the, in the way that, you know, you say, if you direct a film, you know, it's shot by shot. In a way in a script what you're trying to do is that is you're imposing a kind of rhythmic structure mm. on the on the piece um it's slightly different obviously because you're dealing in individual pages or spreads and stuff like that So it's not completely the same discipline but i think if you've got a sense of rhythm and a sense of editing then you then you can write comics you can learn to write comics and the people who can't, i think struggle with that don't
1: yeah i think there's a kind of there's a kind of grammar isn't there that, that that it's different for both that you have to um you have to master
0: yeah comic writing is a bit like songwriting in a way mm. you're kind of layering tracks you're sort of like you're layering a visual track and then, then there's a kind of like this there's, there's the there's the structure of the page which is kind of maybe this is a 12 bar thing and then you're playing with the kind of dialogue and colour and lots of different elements it it seems kind of odd it's maybe to make that analogy but I always think it is quite a bit like that or poetry as well you're dealing with the, the rhythm of words and the rhythm of images as well so it's kind of like having a sense of rhythm I think is crucial to it I mean and I think that's important when you kind of when you come to make when you make films as well I mean I think more than sort of the writing on the page it's having a sense of rhythm when you come to cut it and when you're shooting the seeing with the actors and having a sense of where the peaks and the troughs are
1: yeah yeah absolutely i, I think that's so interesting you saying about the, the being in the editing suite and learning the most when you were there i mean one of my form mm. i mean oh god i've had so many formative experiences it's uh, you know haven't we all <laughs> but i mean one of mine in terms of screenwriting one of the most significance was um uh, i had a um, a screenplay that uh we did a, a like a page turn where you you sit down with a producer and you go from page one all the way through the script and Mm -hmm. they just give you notes on every single page you know every every single pages and Mm -hmm. my sort of stereotypical view of the produce of producers was very much based on Barton Fink and and you know that that kind of big garrulous and ignorant sort of and of course that's absolutely in this certainly in this case that was absolutely the opposite it was this was a person who was cultured absolutely knew how to tell a story absolutely knew what they needed had already produced several films and was and and just just was asking loads of questions. It was just like, why do we need this? Why do we need this bit? Mm-hmm. We've had four scenes, and they all take place in rooms. Can is there any way we can get out of a room for one of these? And you know, <laughs> and it was just. Uh, it. it I, I remember after it took about four or five hours to just go through the whole script and and do this. And afterwards, I was mm-hmm. just thinking, that is the best sort of like that's like three weeks in a in some sort of right. writers retreat or something. Concentrated, yep. and 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 much more valuable because ultimately this person's paying me. So, um, <laughs> so you know, I'm getting a, a, a really a free course in screenwriting. Plus, I'm also being paid for it. So,
0: you can't ask for more.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: I upset someone? I did. A, I was doing a. I did a, a earlier in the year. I did a playwriting course mm-hmm. just as just after COVID and everything. I just wanted to sort of do something where I could get write stuff and see it kind of acted out mm. I hadn't done that for a couple of years <laughs> talking to one of the guys when we did meet we when everything was staged they staged it up at the kind of I oh, was at Southwark Playhouse. they didn't leave in and then we were in the bar afterwards, and one of the writer, one of the other writers was saying to me, "What is it you like most about writing?" And I said, "Getting paid." And I could see I could see the shock on his face, and the, there was a part of him that was broken. I could see by the such a such a mercenary comment. But I I I, I think that's true. I do think there's a thing about you know, you come up with an idea and you eventually con someone into giving you some money. There's a and that is it's always but this a good measure of your writing, if someone's prepared to pay you <laughs> for it, then you know you gotta talk about these things enough, I don't think, as writers. It's um
1: I mean I tell you why. I'll tell you why straight away. It's because mm-hmm. it's a, a throwback to an elitist attitude in which writing was an aristocratic um you know uh pursuit, you know. A higher pursuit, exactly. Yes, yes. And it was, you know, people like Byron and people like Shelley and all the rest of it. The romantic poets I, I really adore. But you know, the idea of of this mm. material stuff was, was was an anathema to to the creative muse mm. and everything. I, I'm a working. I'm for, I'm not. I'm. I am i am not i i would not claim to be working class anymore, but I'm from a working class background. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I have I've no landed wealth. <laughs> I, I I I could only do this via being paid, and I think the same is true as well for film criticism. Um, yeah. there's so there's a real problem with the fact that you know we talk about access and diversity in the world of film criticism mm-hmm. um, class is often ignored in that in that discussion and one of the reasons all the people i meet at film festivals who are in their teens and their 20s and uh, you know they're starting mm-hmm. out and i'm not knocking them but but the vast majority of them are only there because they have substantial wealth financial support behind them you know, mm. you don't find people who who would be from my background in that same circumstance. You know, or they have really good day jobs, which they're but but very few of them are there uh getting fully paid by the outlets that they're
0: writing for. Well, no, that's right. I think that's that's incredibly pertinent. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing is absolutely inor- enormous. I mean, if you go into kind of if you deal with like. Um, the film industry in the UK in particular. I think one of the reasons why we don't make that many films that are, you know, outstanding. There are lots of reasons why we do that. But but I think a lot of the problem with it is that a lot of the things that are there are transplanted from other arts. So there's a lot of like assumed knowledge from like theatre. and which is not to say that you you can't draw heavily from that. You can, but I think the language of theatre and the language of cinema are two totally different things in some respects. Go back to what we're talking about with the language of editing. I think that's if you don't really understand that, I'm not sure how you understand filmmaking Um, and what makes a good film or what makes a film something that kind of comes alive on a screen or something that you say, well, this is a wonderful, wonderful script, and then it's totally boring. Mm, watch the film, you know, and it isn't just about the why it isn't just about the editing, it's all gonna be about the casting, it can be about the choice of director, it can be about loads of myriad different, you know, um creative choices. But I and I do think that some of that is kind of filtered for a very class classist kind of lens. And I think one of the things working in comics is that's not true. <laughs> comics is a much more egalitarian kind of um culture because it was for, for so long a very junk culture. Mm. You know Comics has got a lot more in common with, say, the Hollywood of the past, I would say, than of the of the present. Because that's not so much true now, obviously, because your Marvels and your DCs are kind of absorbed into these giant multinational conglomerates. But certainly when I started working in comics in the, across the pond, in particular in, in the States when I went to DC, you still felt it was a publishing business that was based in New York. And that was a very different thing. Mm. And it was a publishing business based in New York that had its roots in kind of... Where we were on the where DC's offices were, you know, I used to go and see my editor was opposite the David Letterman Theater, that it was a kind of showbiz man. It's not about you know, it's not that. It's really not that, and it, and it, you're as far away from Britain. You know, there's a big world of difference between being there and and seeing all those theaters and seeing you know being in say the West End and that kind of theater experience. Maybe the two are kind of merged more over time. You know, I'm talking about maybe twenty odd years ago. Sure. Um, but a different, definite sense that it was, um, it's a much less, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, that idea, you know, whereas in London, I don't know. I think it's very, the biggest change I've, I remember in London, I remember going to the Curzon, Kers- I used to go to the Curzon Soho a lot mm. back in the sort of like late nineties, early two thousands. Do you remember they used to do those Sunday morning double bills of like, they put together two kind of films from the forties. I can remember mm. going to see Red River and Terror in a Texas Town which which is the yeah, great kind of double bill if ever you want to see one. Um, or things like the show, you know kind of took maybe two Robert Altman films back to back or a couple of Hitchcock films. Anyway, they used to show, show that, but it was it was very accessible. Mm. The sense of the culture was accessible. The cinema was accessible. this was something it wasn't it wasn't expensive. I think it was like five or two films or six quid, something like that. I can remember not going to the Curzon So for a long time and I went to see something there. I can't remember what it was maybe about 2000, maybe around the time I'd have my daughter. It may even be a bit later, maybe about 2015. I remember going to the cinema, watching the film and all the adverts before were for luxury products. Mm. And it was the way that London had changed, the way that London had become more kind of um, much more um, exclusive. Mm. Mm. And the types of films that were being shown were much more exclusive. And I think that that's kind of, that is, that's de- that's a definite process that's occurred in the last 15 years, you know, 10 years at least um and that was you know that was a bit of an eye opener i mean another recently i went to a thing at the bfi i mean i used to go to bfi quite a lot you know go to various events and you i'm sure you, you've been there not bfi I'm not talking about the bafta the bafta up at piccadilly okay right and in the bafta you'd go to the theater or you'd see i remember seeing james cameron do a talk there before just before avatar came out i saw tarantino do a talk just before maybe Inglorious glorious bastards or something had come out around that time which was great you know, it was really, and then, and then afterwards, everyone would, whoever they were, would go into the bar. I went to a thing about two months ago for It's a Sin. It was all to do with the TV BAFTAs. And we talk about it being kind of like the language of inclusivity within, within that kind of world here in the UK, but it was the most exclusive thing I've ever been to. It was hideous. We were sort of like herded in up into a bar, a holding bar for 10 minutes. Where you could buy a grossly overpriced drink and then be kind of like herded into the theatre and then you watched it for 50 minutes and then you were herded out onto the street and it was just totally kind of, you know, very, very odd. Totally opposite of what it used to be um, in my experience um, and not very pleasant.
1: I have a friend, Massimo Benvenu, who uh, told me once about the good old days of, of sort of going to film festivals and stuff. And... Mm he went to uh venice for like 30 40 years uh no hmm. not that long Th- uh, 25 30 years i think i mean he would say how he would um Walk into a hotel and see peter weir uh and just sit down and have a coffee with him and introduce himself and say could i have um i'm i'm thinking i'm working on a on something could I have an interview and he'd say um i'm free tuesday and and he'd get <laughs> an interview with him and that's i think he ended up writing a book about peter Weir actually he certainly wrote wrote you know, he certainly had a long sort of ongoing relationship with him uh yeah. critically um <laughs> And, and it was just like, the, of course, there were still publicists and all the rest of it. But but nowadays, you know, um, people get angry at you if you don't if if I mean, people want you to submit questions and things like that before you even go to the interview and you have to sort of sign a thing that's saying where it's going to be published and everything. As a freelancer, I'm often like, I haven't got a clue where it's going to be published. I'm going to do the interview and I'm going to sell it if, if I can, you know. Um, <laughs> But it was, but it's that sort of like the, there's a whole tranche of gatekeepers who are there, and they're not gatekeepers yeah. in the sense necessarily of, as I say, sort of diversity in terms of race or or, or whatever. It's just like, but it's it's just funneling people off, you know. Hmm. I'm, actually, I'm sure I'm sure that, that there is an element of if you are prejudiced, it gives you a perfect yeah. opportunity to use your power. I'm sure, it does.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. I think it, the whole thing's far more mediated mm. than, it, than it was before in, in lots of different ways. And I, I mean, I did I've, I, did write for a, for a website for a while, did a bit of film reviewing back around 2010 to, to 2012, 13. What website was that? I used to write for Dennis Geek.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, Dennis
0: Geek. Back when, it, back when it was owned by Dennett. went back when Simon Brew was in charge of it. Um, I read it for quite a long time actually i did i did quite a lot of round tables and stuff like that i was just kind of interested in that i was, was always very interested in film it was a, it was another game it was another way of kind of writing and just sort of stretching your, 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 your a different set of muscles um and i but i can but i've recent i was asked recently to go and do a, a junket for something um i hadn't done one for years mm. it was the launch of um one of the new star trek shows it was one of the why i was put forward for it but there you go i did it and it was um it was quite good fun but it was totally kind of it was in person one but and that was fine then they tried to get us to do another one for the launch of paramount plus and i was invited to that and and i think the prs there changed the rule changed what we were going to be doing about five six times till the point it was like you can come into London for an eight minute interview with this person and you cannot you can't see these people you can only see this person even though we've offered you both of these people at various but it's just you just thought well it's not worth it you know? mm. so it's like do you want anyone to cover your thing
1: yeah yeah <laughs> I, I i don't know if sometimes they're just filling up a calendar or something it just seems to be so sometimes quite random uh, just bizarre who you get and who gets pulled at the last minute and who turns up and yeah you know, i understand certain situations are, are, are fluid but you know, it can be you you can end up feeling like you're not a journalist anymore you're just a copywriter for a publicity machine and it's just like well Absolutely. that's not what I signed up for that's not what
0: I want to do. Well it was obvious I think when I was doing it you could see it was like that mm. um, I can remember doing a roundtable with William Friedkin once, which was kind of it's like it's a round table you really want to be interviewing them. but um, someone sort of post tweeting before we went in you know I've never seen a William Friedkin film would be it, it'll be like well <laughs> get, get a different job then <laughs> exactly it was just like well you're not really going to ask him anything interesting then are you i mean it's um you know <laughs> I'm, but yeah i mean i've done some i've done some I've, I've been to some good things been to some bad things one of the best interviews i ever did was with rick mccallum you know the opportunity star was pretty cool right because he was also a, a uh, he was also Dennis Potter's producer, wasn't he? Before he went and worked for um, Lucas, I think that's how they met. They met on the set of Dream Child. He was making Dream Child in one room, one studio, a tiny studio, and George Lucas was over overseeing Return to Oz, right? Because the... um, he'd been flown in as kind of to keep an eye on Walter merch for the studio, um, and they kind of like bonded over that. And I met McCallum at a, 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 he was at a, a comic, comic convention. Actually, it was up at business design center so this was 2012 he was there and i introduced myself i said i meant to be interviewing him in a couple of, couple of days and, he, and i said do you mind if i could ask you these types of questions and he was like totally up for it because that's part of my history you know mm. and we got like a 90 minutes with him in this hotel and it was great interview really good very open very kind of and also, you get him away from the stuff that he's promoting. <laughs> mm,
1: yeah, I mean, that's often the, the secret, is if you can find a way of talking about something which isn't necessarily the, the stuff they want you to talk about, because they've been repeating it for, like, yeah, the yeah. last week to, to hundreds of different peoples in one form or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the anecdotes uh, worn down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I also wanted to ask you about, um, I mean, I, this is a bit of a, uh, uh, what's the word? A pat question, perhaps, as a, as a comic book writer and a film writer, you know, yeah. where do you what 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 do you think of? I've just come back as well from seeing Thor. Well, come back last night. I saw Thor, um, Love and Thunder. A, mm-hmm. After for after sort of thinking, I'm almost done with with Marvel. I I, I thought okay, I'll give I'll give them one more go and. Um, and I th- thought it was okay, actually.
0: I had absolutely no real... I really liked it. I yeah. It was, I thought it was better than okay, actually. Okay. I thought it was... Uh...
1: Okay, well, let's start there. <laughs> yeah.
0: What, what, so what do I think of the whole superhero comic? Uh,
1: well, Ooh. we can start with Thor and then
0: move, move backwards. Well, I really liked it. I mean, I was, I was quite... Um, I was, I'm less kind of enamoured of Thor Ragnarok, actually, than, than a lot of other people. I mean, I enjoyed that when I saw it. Um, But I didn't think, I thought there were lots of, it was very lumpy and very kind of, I thought there was a Taika Waititi film sort of like fighting to get out of that.
1: Mm.
0: And there was like all this, I thought, I thought the stuff of Kate Blanchet in that film was very poorly done. Mm. I thought it was very kind of, that was rote. That was very flat, very uninteresting. It was very poor. It was very dull in the way it was shot and everything else. But obviously the stuff with, you know, Chris Hemsworth, being on the other planet and meet Tessa Thompson. I liked a lot. So kind of, for me, all the stuff that was good about the the, the Ragnarok was in this. And I thought Christian Bale was miles better than um, her, much better character, an interesting kind of character. I thought it had, I just thought it was a better film. I just thought it was better made. I thought the tone of it was more interesting. I thought the story was. I've read all this stuff about it being incoherent and everything. I don't believe, don't agree with that at all. I thought it's very coherent. It's very clear. It's very set up in the first scene. <laughs> mm. And it kind of pays off at the end. And you know, it's a fairy story. You know, you have a childlike character narrating at the beginning, you know, when it starts, let me tell you the story of Thor odinson Son, you know. Mm. And it's like, it's like, you know, hunt for the wilder people it's like a kind of um fallible narrator isn't it if you use that kind of highfalutin term which is so so widely used now it's not even highfalutin anymore such a cliche but i think i, I thought it was really good i thought it was really well done i thought it was i don't have a problem with it being funny what are you trying to say a film's too funny what, or not too many jokes it's like what is fucking god you know for christ's sake it's like it wasn't it? it's so i kind of and for me, it kind of feels I think it's more like a Thor comic, the kind of Walt Simonson comics that I that I really liked as a kid and re reread recently. The sort of joy of those kinds of things that doesn't and I think but I think it's a much smarter and it's a much more nimble and it's a much more funny, and it says some very interesting things, you know, like there's not it's not a surprise that he goes he kills Zeus, doesn't he? He sort of dethroned, it's the god becoming man, it's all that kind of I liked it. I thought it was really, really good. I thought it was very... I've liked a lot more of the recent films than the early ones. I struggled with a lot of the earlier Marvel films, I have to say. Right. Because I felt they were too... You're not talking to the right person. I'm a a comic book person. So I've read these characters. You know, when they made Iron Man, Mm. when I was a little kid, I read that Iron Manga story, you know, when I was nine, you know, weekly in a kind of reprinted in British comics and then by Marvel iron man comics on the stand from then so and when they replaced captain america with kind of you know uh, the the character in the the falcon and the winter soldier i read those comics back back in the day you know so my my view on it is obviously going to be different and it i just always i know I, I like I, I like the first iron man film i think it's okay i don't see it as being a kind of masterpiece i mean if you compare it it came out the same summer as uh, the Dark Knight, didn't it? yeah, yeah, and essentially it's kind of Batman Begins, mm. but it's nowhere near as near as good a piece of filmmaking as that, as that, or as I mean, I can remember when Batman Begins came out. I remember going to see that. Obviously, I was a huge Batman fan. I'd watched, started working for DC around that time. I thought that it was really good, except I knew that story so well. Mm, <laughs> right, for me, it wasn't kind of. Whereas I think. Yeah, and I think that was the thing when Marvel started doing what they were doing. Because and also two thousand eight, that was the year the Dark Knight came out. I actually did some a lot of the, some of the marketing work on the Dark Knight. I was for DC. I did some of the kind of product stuff that they did. They did a lot of comic strips that were kind of um, so I adapted the beginning of the film for a Blu Ray giveaway. The bank job. Mm. Um, I wrote some original stuff around the film as well. So I read the script for the Dark Knight about ten months before it came out, and I was really shocked at that. I was surprised when I read it. I thought, "This is great," right? But is it going to be successful? Right. You, because it's so dark. You saw the it's risk. So oh yeah, 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 yeah. And if you remember as well, Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger was alive when I when I when I read it as well. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I think people forget how much that played into the kind of the thing around the film, making it an, a big event as well. I mean, and it's not, and it didn't, it wasn't successful because of the event. Mm. Although that didn't hurt it. It was really bloody good as well it's it's kind of like so it's really strange when i saw the dark Knight. i saw the dark Knight having read the script <laughs> It was like and mm. turn so it was kind of very interesting to watch it from that point of view so my view i mean so i don't know what, where we are in terms of the, the, the thing of it so my point is that of. i thought he did something really kind of new in 2008 because i did went on the works on the dark Knight and i i liked batman begins but i just thought well i've um, you know maybe I'm batman out and he did something different with that they took it somewhere different and I, I'm a bit I like the second one as well the Dark Knight Rises I think that's you know I think that all I for me the two those two are the better films of the of the trilogy in terms of the filmmaking in terms of the scale in terms of what you're paying off that you've set up earlier on I know a lot of people don't agree with that but that's my personal feeling on the on the thing. And the way he made that film was also was totally different from the way these films had been made before. Um, so I, I just, in 2008, when those Marvel, when first, certainly that first, you know, when you compare the ambition of Ang Lee's Hulk movie to the Incredible Hulk that came out that year, that Ang Lee's Hulk is a very flawed film, mm. but it's an ambitious film and it's cinema. It's truly cinematic. Right. Um, it may get things wrong, I think, you know, it may not be completely successful, but the ambition in that film from a world class filmmaker is huge. Um, and then you see the incredible <laughs> Incredible Hulk, which I think is, I don't think he's a great film no. by anyone's definition. It's not a great popcorn movie. It's so good they replaced the lead actor when they made the Avengers. you know it's kind of all those sorts of things. So I was kind of down on I wasn't that interested in. I liked the, the, the I like Thor and Captain America more. When they came along, because I thought they they were more risky um, to get right, um, and Thor is basically Superman two, because <laughs> mm. I rewatched mean, it, it. Captain America is kind of you know it's sort of bit like bit Hellboy in there, you know, a bit of. Uh... I remember I remember feeling it was a bit Raiders as well. They had a sort of like uh, you yeah. know the period
1: yeah. detail, the feel of.
0: Yes, no, it's well. Hellboy is quite Raiders as well. Oh, it's kind of got a certain yeah, there's a lot of that in there, isn't there? But it is really, and Joe Johnson, obviously the Lucasfilm thing is a strong kind of link. Um, so I kind of thought those ones were kind of okay. I like the first Avengers film, but it's not very challenging. Mm. <laughs> mm. It's kind of, always said at the time, it's the most expensive kind of TV movie ever made. Mm. It's kind of, I like, I mean, I, I like, we watched it recently. We are watching them all with my, with my daughter, who's nearly nine, because she has been coming, watching them all. And, um, those ones are really enjoyable, but I just, that, I just think for me, where it kind of where Marvel kind of clicked into gear and went up a notch was made Civil War, right. because I think then they stopped being so meek,
1: mm.
0: and obviously there was a big changes over the over the film properties. And I just think then, when you see them when they bring in Spider Man, when they're bringing in kind of Captain America, and they're kind of dealing with like the Iron Man thing as a kind of that's the big sort of mashup. That's really where you start saying this. And I'm at that bit where they fight at the airport is like, well, that is a comic book even more than the Avengers or the Avengers age of ultra and from this is, this is what if you read comic books, this is what it is. You know, this is exactly the kind of that sense of wonder and kind of stupidity and it's joyously mad and all the rest of it. Um, so for me that's from then and I've, I mean I've 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 liked my, I haven't seen the Eternals I haven't seen Shang-Chi because I didn't get to see them at the time and I haven't got round to watching them on thing I've sort of seen everyone else and I like the later ones because I think they're kind of madder. I think they're more like they're the kinds of things I would have you know I, I liked when I was young but then I'm a I'm a I'm an I'm a eight-year-old boy really at heart, so, uh... <laughs> aren't we all uh, oh, aren't we except... all but that's 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 kind of my feeling on them I don't know I mean I don't know what that
1: no, I mean, if that makes any sense, it, it, it's absolutely coherent. Um, and I sort of, I, I guess, I would cross over with you on several. I mean, I, I guess there are several things I would dispute, and there are other things that I would wholeheartedly agree with. I think the, um, I think the Nolan Batman's absolutely because um, I mean, I was there for the for the Tim Burton Batmans and for the hype and for the yeah, huge yeah. sort of you know, the, it's, it's 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 difficult to explain to people how that kind of publicity had had never been there before you know that kind of no 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 i remember seeing like batman posters on like bus stops for the first time i was like mm. no one put
0: movie posters on bus stops before you know um you were living in the, so you grew up in the northwest so you, yeah did you ever see the cover of timeout that they did they did a timeout no no i don't know if, the, I don't know if time out we're doing like city editions at that point. No, time the, out in london it was just london just london then yeah, so this was maybe six to nine months before it came out. They did a cover of Time Out, which was the Batman logo, mm. the poster. And it was the first time you'd seen pictures from it. And there weren't even that many pictures. They were really crap as well. They were like aerial shots of Batman, a bit of shot of Jack Nicholson. And it was an article about it. And it was like, there was, you could tell that was a big stage. And was kind of happening. Um, but you're right. I mean, the way the show, the film was marketed is kind of like, it's a, it was totally unlike anything ever before. Mm, mm. Unique, and so and and yet and uh,
1: uh, you know the Batman film. I went to see it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was you know I didn't think it was anything that special. I prefer. I, re- I mean, I don't think this is a controversial opinion. I really enjoyed the sequel, kind of more. And I I've always been a comic book guy for Warlord Battle Two Thousand AD, and obviously when I was younger, yeah. Wizard and Wizarding Chips and Beano I never liked the Dandy. Not a dandy man. Um, no. And, uh, but I was not American comics. I just didn't have any... Uh, I don't even think I had access to... I'm not, not even sure if I... But certainly n- neither me nor nor any of my friends read Marvel or DC particularly. So I actually started reading comic books uh, as graphic novels with that first sort of wave of the Killing Joke and the Dark Knight. and yeah, yeah. yeah um so in a way it was sort of like I was reading the stuff that was subverting a lot of the stuff that I hadn't read you know or I hadn't seen um so when I saw Nolan's uh Batman Begins I was just blown away by it I just thought this is this is amazing this is this is totally um I did think that uh, and this will be a consistent complaint with many not just comic book movies but action movies in general that the sort of last act is just like okay mm-hmm. you're just blowing shit up now um i do think there's there that is a consistent problem that action cinema has um uh, the sense of uh, you've got to accumulate and and you know
2: mm. uh
1: I, I, and at a certain point you know i if if i fall off a building yeah if i jump out of the window of my bedroom i've got uh you know six meters to fall and i know what that will feel like that will feel very painful okay. but if i jump off the top of the empire state building or, or i jump out of an airplane i have going got a cl- that's it's you mm-hmm. know there's no way i can relate to that so and so uh, it has a similar thing with with the batman movies as uh, with the with action movies that once you get Pass, and James Bond is another one. Once you get past a certain level of jeopardy and danger, it's just like, well, I don't it doesn't relate whatsoever. I did. I loved Dark Knight, as did everyone. I really uh, will. Dark Knight Rises is a hill I'll die on, saying that that is a, a fantastic movie and a wonderful conclusion.
2: Yeah 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 no it's, right.
1: I I just I thought it was an opera. I just thought there was this you know that jail and everything it, it's just opera. It's like I've seen Verdi operas staged in that same mm. grandiose style. Um and I thought a lot of the and this is where the, sort of the geekdom of of criticism, you know, the 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 the, the criticism became sort of something that the the geeks did more Den of Geek. There you go. It's right. Mm-hmm. It's in, yeah, it's in yeah, the yeah. name. There was this sort of like misunderstanding of what criticism is, where mm. you're not. Your job is not to be the scriptwriter. Your job is not to look at potential sort of contract. What do you mean that he he blew it up? When the he, how far could he go? And the time doesn't work. And it's just like. That's not how stories work. You know, that kind of... Oh, no, no. You know, you, you, you've you believed that you, you're people nitpicking, but surely the army would do something at this point. You're nitpicking stuff, and the premise of the film is a vigilante who dresses up as a bat and beats up criminals, you know.
0: Exactly. You know, <laughs> yes.
1: If you're not willing to enter into the universe with the same, you know, the willing suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. then... Then you know there's no point in you even watching this. You're you're not watching
0: the same film as I am. But also as well, you're not watching. I think you, the, the geek kind of thing as well is how much cinema is there in the kind of the framework of what they're talking about as well. And, and you know, it's, it's obviously watch the Nolan films. He's drawing on you know he's, on the very obvious level. People will say he, but he's very much drawing on the films of like James Cameron. You know, it, the, you know even the palette <laughs> of a lot of the stuff Cameron. Ridley Scott, um, you know, there's people talk about Kubrick. I think that's less true of the Batman films. I think that's um, definitely Bond. I mean, it, absolutely Bond. That whole Bat- Batmobile chase in the first film is, is the tank chase from Goldeneye. Mm. He's even got the same costume designer for Bruce Wayne's clothes as, as designed Bond's outfits during the 90s and the first and Casino Royale. It's Lindy Hemming, isn't it? So it's. Um, that's Not by design, that's not by accident either. It's um, so there's a kind of there's a uh, but then when you get into kind of like the the last one, you're seeing kind of there's lots of connections to other types of literary sources and stuff like that. And you know, at the end of the day, people most of the viewers with the best will in the world online. And uh, I'm not saying that you need that, needs to be. I think, but I think also as well, you can kind of say, "Oh, it doesn't that stuff doesn't matter if you're watching the film." But well, actually, in a way, it does matter because actually those things have been put in the film for a reason. So this is the thing with, with Love and Thunder that I think is really good is I think that film has got a lot of stuff in it that's really interesting. Mm. It's like it, for me, it was more like watching Terry Gilliam do a superhero movie
1: mm.
0: than it's got a lot of that. It's got a lot of Baron Munchausen. It's got a lot of although it's got a lot of that type of filmmaking kind of right at the heart of it. So I didn't realize he was attached to Time Bandits, which makes perfect sense. You know, that's kind of uh, <laughs> that's that's exactly. So it kind of and, and Flash Gordon, the Mike Hodges Flash Gordon is kind of those types of things. You know, um, and those are clear kind of touch points for it. Uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's kind of. So I don't know. I think I don't want to kind of sort of like bash the type of criticism the type of reactions that there are, but a lot of it is spectacularly ill-informed and also not just spectacularly informed, but also spectacularly kind of like um, so subjective <laughs>
2: mm.
0: <laughs> as the, the, the notion of objectivity in the way that you can. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. entertainment or popular art or whatever you want to describe it it seems to be kind of pushed to the to the to the that's not even part of the equation it's all about subjective responses and sometimes your subjective response can be wrong yes (laughs) yes um you know we've all done that yeah yeah the least (laughs) we do that every day the
1: least interesting part of any review is 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 is, does somebody like something or not you know Mm. i used to have a mate who i I still have a mate elliot he's a great mate but he he would he was the he was like twitter before twitter because Mm. you'd he'd say what was the film like last night and you'd go well it was um and he went "Ah, you hated it didn't you and it was mm. like, no, I, I didn't, but I there are so mm. many different gradations of, of how I could react mm. to it. It, it, you know, and I'm often baffled. I'm often confused, um, so I'm often watching things going, ah, I sort of think this and I sort yeah, yeah, of yeah. think that, and I change my mind a lot. I change my mind all the time. Yeah. So, for instance, just talking to you about Lo- uh, Love and Thunder makes me want to watch it again. Because I I've...
0: well I've actually seen it again. I saw it with my daughter on Sassy. I, right. I, I, I twice. And I thought the second time it was any like little niggles, like little plot things that I maybe I noticed. It's a film that rewards rewatching. Mm. Mm. Which to me is always a is always the sign of a of a good movie. And I think if you've got kind of insane reactions like Mark Mode, you know, what he's his kind of rant about it the other day if people are doing rants about something then then there's probably something there what was his rant i didn't because he ran i didn't hear about that oh it was disgusting it was terrible it was incoherent it wasn't funny it was no laugh out louds. mark son mayo was kind of definitely didn't agree with mm. on the thing they were watching <laughs> it was bizarre it was just, i've heard it from a few other people as well it's like that i think it's sensibility isn't it as well it's like if you I don't know. I mean, I yeah, pay your money, you take your choice. But I can remember Mark Kermode famously saying that he hated Blue Velvet the first time he saw it Mm. and walked out and said it was a disgusting, disgraceful film, and now he thinks it's an masterpiece.
1: Yeah, yeah. and he he doesn't get Big Lebowski at all. Apparently, that's another another of his lacunae.
0: Well, there you go. What can you
1: say? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't want to. I'm not going to bash Mark Kermode, but at the same time.
0: Uh, but I think it's interesting. The most kind of like he's you know this is out there. He's make you know he's he's making big you know it's out there on YouTube. They're highlighting it. Mark's rant against Lawler Fund though. He wants to draw attention to it. So you know, it,
1: it, just that idea that there's such a thing as a rant as well. That that's like a, a that's like a, a critical. I mean, this is a guy who wrote a book called Hatchet Job. But you know that that you. I, it begins to to think that the the criticism itself or the critic is becoming sort of self serving of like okay I haven't done a rant all year I need I need a couple of
0: rants to you know. Um... Whereas I think you know, I don't know what your view on it is it but for me a film I could rant about all day long is to- it's Top Gun. Mm. It's a disgusting film. Mm. It's a despicable piece of work. Mm. (laughs) It's it's kind of fascist propaganda. Mm. It's like it hasn't even got the courage to name the enemy in the film. No, no. And it hides behind it hides behind a kind of like a kind of you know this is an artistic conceit and it's like no, it's not. It's because you want to sell this film in China. It's because you want to sell this film in Russia. You know, obviously you can't. But you made it two years ago when you were trying to do that. Yeah. I, and, and that for me is there's 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 nothing there's nothing destructive or nasty at the heart of thor love and thunder you know if we're gonna give, just drop it back to what we're talking about here but top gun maverick is based on you know <laughs> despicable material what what can i say
1: oh yeah yeah I, the only thing i would dispute there is the i mean i agree there are uh commercial considerations for not naming the enemy But I also think that that's like, um, that's part of its fascism is it's like, it doesn't really matter who you fight as Mm -hmm. long as you fight, you know, fighting is the thing, you just have to fight. Um, And it's, I'm not sure if it's George Orwell, I think think it was George Orwell who said something like, you know, it doesn't matter how well well you build a wall, it makes a difference if it's around a garden or a concentration Mm -hmm. camp, you know. so so you could look at Top Gun and I could say technically it does this really really well,
0: but it's all it's technically it's a phenomenally technically fantastically made film one yeah. some of the best sound editing I've seen in the film for a long time um it's it's edited for, phenomenally well you know on a technical level I'm not going to kind of knock it it's technically very good in the service of a sort of
1: Reaganite, militaristic philosophy
0: that is uh so birth of a nation Mm. yeah yeah that's technically probably the most influential movie of all time and it's despicable yeah um so yeah no i think that's right i mean i i I mean i i think it's interesting if you we're going off topic but you know top gun is a far more ludicrous superhero movie than any other superhero movie you know it's just ridiculous it's just absolutely and it's not ridiculous it's ridiculous I say, oh well, that's part of it it's charm isn't it it's like well you're dealing in real things here this is that's not part of its charm i just think it's i, I look i just watch that film and i think look at it as a failure of the human imagination <laughs> <laughs> um, and that that is you know, I you know, somewhat I, that can be my rant, you know, that, that'll be that, but I look at it and I, but I look at the, the, the think back to the last Mission Impossible film, which I really disliked as well. And I'd quite liked the previous one, Rogue Nation, I thought that one was quite a bit more nimble, it was a bit more fun. You know, they were in that era where they were kind of like to rehabilitate Tom Cruise, they were kind of like deconstructing his image and being quite funny. You know, things like you know, live, you know, uh, what's, the, what's the Doug Lyman one um edge of tomorrow was called yeah wasn't it? yeah that one you know if you don't like tom cruise in that you can watch him die hundreds of times you know there's kind of an element of that and the character's an idiot mm-hmm. i quite liked american Made. i thought that was quite well done i liked oblivion the, the uh the science fiction i haven't seen oblivion a lot of people
1: say it's it's pretty it's good. well worth um, a watch it's the same director as top gun maverick i think
0: yeah, yeah good, isn't it um yes but i but fallout mission impossible Fallout, i thought was just blasted and when they said oh we had a 27 page script it's like well you could tell <laughs> it just goes like it's like lumbers from set piece to set piece to set piece it's like totally over overdone in terms of its filmmaking and then it has that horrible thing at the end where it's like only you you know and ethan you know the lone hero can save this world you know and all that and it's like oh no we're back into that territory and it doesn't surprise me that top gun maverick is the same you know it's like we've gone away, we, we've rehabilitated Tom now. We can kind of just go back into all this kind of neocon fantasy again. And f- feeding the ego, especially
1: because Mission Impossible was always about the team. It was always about there's a team with loads of individual pieces that are moving, and then they've made it into sort of the American James Bond, essentially, without any of, of James Bond's kind of charm. I mean, I, I like James Bond. I'm a big James Bond fan. Me too, yeah. And, uh, and the, the Daniel Craig movies are often sort of compared uh, unfavourably to the Mission Impossible films, it, just in terms of the action set pieces have got better and better with Mission Impossible and the James Bond ones are sort of struggling to keep up. But I think the James Bond films, they're kind of a... I don't watch them. Sorry. They're kind of about stuff. It's like you say it's said about, yeah, they're fantasies, yes, all the, all the rest of it, but they do sort of ping against bits of the real world in the way that the Mission Impossible movies don't, or certainly
0: don't in a way that sounds right. Well, no, you watch a film like Skyfall. Skyfall's a great popcorn movie. It's a great popcorn movie. It's a huge success. There's a reason it was a huge success, because it's very good. Mm. Um, But also, as well, the person making it understands the fantasy that he's unpacking. You know, know, Sam Mendes did a really great job in that film of, like, kind of where do you place Bond? I mean, the whole thing at the end is like, you know, it's like John Buchan, you know, in the, in, in, in 39 steps, you know, when he's out there on the kind of moors and everything, you're in kind of, also you're in kind of Heathcliff territory, aren't you? You're kind of like, it's all this kind of stuff. There's a, there's a lot of that. That's all kind of bubbling away. You know, you've got the stuff about decoding Bond's reality in the middle, is done as a throwaway gag, you know, that's all very, it's all done very lightly, but it's done very, very cleverly. And it's got real impact i mean i think yeah i mean i think i think the bomb film you know those films i mean there's what it, i suppose people would say there are two great daniel craig bomb films which is casino royale and skyfall and the others are varying degrees of hit and miss maybe i like i quite enjoyed spectre i think spectre a, as, a, as a as a kind of a, there it's got problems obviously but as a as a as a kind of big picture bomb movie i vastly prefer that to no time to die i mean i thought no time to die is quite is my least favorite of all of them oh really oh, that's interesting
2: <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
1: no, i don't i I'm, I'm i'm much warmer on spectre than i was i re-watched it quite recently i think uh, maybe a year ago I Rewatched all of them together and i uh, i didn't I didn't. Dis- I mean, again, it was kind of there was a critical sort of backlash. There was sort of the it, it, it was released in England first, and all the English critics went five stars. He's back. It's amazing. And then it, it was released in the states, and the states critics went, "What are you guys smoking? This is no nowhere near as good as Skyfall." And and I I think that neither of those were true, and somewhere in between, it was it w- was the was the you know correct sort of evaluation. I r- really rate Quantum of Solace, and I know that's got a lot of technical problems to do with its, uh, you know, the writer's strike and, you know, the script not being there or anything, but that... Well, it's about it's, something. It's, a, <laughs> it's about something, and it's a 90-minute sort of punk song. It's like if, if, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you did Bond as a punk movie, and, I, and the editing is crazy and kind of shouldn't work, but at a certain point, I, I think that, that really richly rewards a reviewing just because the first time you're watching it, you can't follow it. And the second time you're watching it, you're going, no, no, I know the story. Crack on, you know.
0: Yeah, no, I, 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 I think it's one of the more underrated movies because mm. it's kind of, a, it's a bit of an outlier in some respects. I mean, it, obviously it works better as a kind of, a uh, sort of addendum to uh, Casino Royale. But it, it's a much better looking film, mm. than Casino Royale. Mm the look of all the Bond movies after that owe a debt to, to, to uh, Quantum of Solace, the, the texture and style and tone and the way they approach the the, the filmmaking. You know, Casino Royale, I think, actually is quite a... I know everyone talks about, you know, they should bring back Martin Campbell. For me, Martin Campbell's best Bond film is gold. Goldly. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. <laughs> I, think Casino, I have a problem. I think Casino Royale is very good, but I think it is also very flawed and i my flaws the, the flaws i thought were there when i saw it the first time i there all the way through and after, uh, you, you take an hour to introduce the love of his life and he has no chemistry with her then it's a problem mm-hmm. for a love story mm-hmm. um and at the beginning it's kind of a very generic action movie you know um i think it, but it's got enough interesting stuff and it plays with the character enough and it does things he's great in it judy dench is great in it um I think the loss of Judy Dench after Skyfall is the biggest problem with the subsequent Bond films. Mm. Actually, in my my view, you lose there's something that was just never replaced in those films. That after she was, it feels like a
1: backward gone. move to go with a bloke. <laughs> I know that. I Not mean, Ray Fiennes is great, and I I really No Time to Die one of my favourite scenes uh, in any of the Craig Bond. Films of acting. I mean, I mean, I love these. I love tiny little line readings and things mm. which which really hit well. Mm. Is when Ray, Ray Fines has a drink and Craig says, "God, you're thirsty," and I just <laughs> think, "Wow, that is such a a str- especially yeah, Bond Bond the alcoholic having <laughs> I mean, uh, having a go at the boss for drinking on duty."
0: You know. Well, I like all the stuff in. I like all the stuff Inspector where you spend all the time with kind of him and. You know, Q and Money Penny. I think well, that's that's they haven't really ever done that mm. in a bomb film before, well. and that was that's why I think that that gives it a really different flavour, and they kind of blend that all together. In the, I, the, I think the final act, Spectre is uh, really good. Mm. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's kind of yeah, of course it's daft, but it's like it kind of you come back to London, it works, and it kind of works as a lovely little flip to um, to Skyfall because you've got in that you go to the countryside, you go back in time, and at the end of that one you go back to the city, you go right back to kind of where we are. Now mm-hmm. you know there's, there's the ancestral home is burnt at the end of that one, and then the kind of the work home is being demolished at the at the at the end of that one. And I just think um, they but the way they kind of juggle all those different characters in that final act is very very effective. Um, and I thought much more effective than the final act in time, No Time to Die. Uh... But then again, I thought that the ending, I thought the ending of, of Spectre was kind of the perfect way to leave it. <laughs> in lots of ways mm. yeah, i just think no time looks like one is that's just the one where they can't really bring themselves to kind of reboot the thing mm. and they've got a real big kind of like financial kind of stake in daniel craig carrying on because they know it works and then so they kind of do it but i thought that was the time to redo it i think that was the time i i think with no time to i kind of, it just felt old i just think it was it felt like it's that was a story we didn't really need or care and i don't really think it's resonated like if you know we're now sort of like nearly a year after it came out yeah do you see what yeah, i mean yeah I he's, I mean- he's retiring yeah. again
1: <laughs> you know oh is yeah. he retired i mean he spent more films retired than he spent actually exactly yeah, 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 yeah secret agent which, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... But, okay, uh, one thing I wanted to ask a- about the about the comic book movies as well in the... And I mean, I guess we're talking about franchises in Hollywood generally hmm. as well. Not, it's not... But one of the, th- the things, rather than any individual sort of comic book movie, I think the biggest criticism people sort of have is just the fatigue with, with it being such... A, a, um, dominating so much sort of hollywood output in terms of action cinema at the moment and and for the past you know uh decade and a half i guess uh going back to the to the marvels because I, I i do see the nolan films as a sort of self i mean that's where the nolan films have this sort of um difference it's not just the filmmaking and it's specifically very much a nolan eye and all the rest of it but it, there is a story with a beginning and a middle and end and it finishes and then you mm-hmm. get the you get the other sort of and it feels like it's an ongoing saga that just uh i don't know it's, it's just getting to the point where uh, often people talk about television being cinematic now in terms of the quality and in terms of the ambition but it's almost like cinema has become tv again in the gone back to sort of flashcards and serials where you're mm-hmm. you're watching you you're you're watching something that that depends on you already knowing five or six films um how how do you stand with that as a as a, uh, a, a you know as a, a comic book aficionado as well as a, a, a you know lover of cinema what do i
0: think about it i mean i think that i think the, the thing you have to say is the reason I know, and when we're talking about this, we're talking about Marvel, aren't we?
1: Mainly, yeah. I mean, we a little bit DC. I mean, Morbius has come out
0: recently. Venom has come out. If you can make a point about DC is that they haven't done it very well. Mm. I mean, and I think to, in some respects, that's because they, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of their of their characters because the DC characters, you said you kind of came to it when you read the rest of it. The best DC films, the most successful films based on DC properties, and Chris—I remember Chris Nolan saying this about Batman when he when he did it—that you know you keep Batman and Superman separate because there's a kind of lot of iconic power in those characters. You don't need to have that. Well, the truth is that the the, the kind of idea of continuity is a Marvel thing. Mm. You know, DC always did. You know, there was a bit of Batman and Superman. that would be world's finest in the past, but they they worked because they were kept separate. Batman would have his own kind of adventures, you know, and there's a kind of Batman family of characters. Superman would have his own adventures. They might team up in the Justice League, but that would be kind of very much its own sealed little world. Um, I, if you look at the success of Joker or something like that, that doesn't, that's a very much, that's like a kind of graphic novel. Well, there was a graphic novel, Joker graphic novel by Brian Azzarello and Lee Behimo, I think sort of 15 years ago around the time The Dark Knight came out. Um, And that's, big influence on that book on that film sorry i should say um i think keeping those characters on their own is far more is where they're at their best i don't Mm -hmm. think mixing them together well they're very different characters they're also very kind of they're they're very kind of they're like fairy story characters in a way superman is you know he's moses with a bit you know he's a science fiction version of that kind of story batman is a bit zorro he's a bit Count of Monte Cristo. There's all this kind of elements to Batman that are there that you can not sort of play with. Wonder Woman is her own thing. You know, Wonder Woman was successful because it was set in a different time period. It didn't really inter- impinge on anything else, did it? Aquaman didn't really impinge on anything else. They're much more powerful when you keep them separate. Mm. Whereas I think the Marvel comics are by def- definition have always been defined by the fact they work together. The first issue of Spider-Man, the Amazing Spider-Man, is a team up with the Fantastic 4 mm. Um, so right back to the sixties, this is not something that, this is the thing I think when you watch the, um, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man's, which I think the first two are very good. Um, you always felt in those films, there was something missing. They were like the, the Keaton Batman films, but Spider-Man exists in a world where there are other superheroes, Mm. you know, that's less, less true in the X-Men films, because obviously the X-Men kind of interconnect with their own massive cast of characters. but then when you get to the, I think Marvel would, I think the other, the failure of all those other Marvel films is because they try to do that kind of standalone thing, you know, like Daredevil, mm. Electra. I mean, these are, these are not good films. You know, <laughs> you know, the Incredible Hulk, the original Ang Hulk, you know, kind of Hulk should operate in a world where there are other characters, you know. If you're going to do that kind of version of the character. I think the Marvel thing is A, because they're, they're true to what the source material is. And across the kind of 30 odd movies, the hit rate is really high. You know, the most amazing, are less successful are still entertaining. They haven't really made what you'd call an out and out kind of turkey. There are films I didn't like the first time I saw them, like I'd sort of be watching with my daughter. I watched the Thor of the Dark World, which is a film I'd kind of sort of like put away as kind of like, oh, don't want to watch that again. Mm. You know, watch that with her. And I was kind of pleasantly surprised. There are bits in it that are quite funny. There are bits in it, some, it's not the best film by any stretch of the imagination, but it's kind of like, you know, there are far worse movies than that that are out there. Um, and yet you can also see why they then went for in a completely different direction when they brought in Taker to do, you know, for Lagnarok. Um But I would say their success is their success. Other people's failure is there. I mean, and it's not just DC. I mean, DC has been successful. I think this is the other thing that should also be kind of, um, that is overlooked in this kind of like, Marvel is a huge success, DC's not. I mean, Joker did a billion dollars. Wonder Woman did nearly a billion dollars. Aquaman, 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 which was a joke character in, you know, Entourage, Mm. did a billion dollars, you know? Batman versus Superman did 900, nearly $900 million. You know, you, you took, when you add all that to get to Suicide Squad, the first one, not the second one. So these are films have not been unsuccessful. These films have been successful by any kind of business metric. What they haven't had is the kind of cultural kind of success. Mm. They haven't had the kind of the ability to kind of like really capture something. And that's the thing that Marvel movies have done. They have captured something. Whether they will continue to capture something, everything ends, doesn't it? All all tastes change, time moves on. But if you look at the kind of landscape of cinema, I think it's more to do... The the, the point is that that Disney and then obviously Marvel before they were bought by Disney have created something that works. And everyone else has tried to move into doing something similar. So whether that's universal with their failed kind of monster movies or... Or any of those other things. No, and even Star Star Wars is a really good example. You know, the attempt to try and turn Star Wars into this kind of like um, wide-ranging, you know, multi-kind of spoked, multi-transmedia kind of franchise. You know, considering how successful and how well known Star Wars is, they've done a really because they don't have. The thing with Marvels, mo- whatever you say, think about them is they've all got the characters. Just spoke off into these different things, you know. Thor, Love and Thunder is what is it? Aven- is it? Is kind of an Avenged sequel? Is it kind of a Thor sequel? It's got a bit of Guardians. Of- is it- the Guardians of the Galaxy in there. They're a huge part of their own franchise. You know, they've got their own series of films which are hugely popular. No one else has got that. And I, I mean, I think in terms of the broader kind of way that studios have approached. If you want to talk about action cinema, well, what action cinema? is there who's making it mm. you know fast and furious well you know you can't exactly say that fast and furious isn't is, is is different to the marvel movies in a way because they're just kind of doing their, their kind of version of that um or the bond franchise you know I, I mean i think that the marvel films at least they have some character to them i i think in top run and mission impossible there's no character everyone you know sort of Says oh it's you know Mission Impossible that Fallout or whatever or Top Gun Maverick is up there with kind of Mad Max Fury Road, is it? No, I don't. No, not. I don't see it. Not for. I mean
1: Mad Max Fury Road sticks out like a uh, you know a, a, saw thumb. a, 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 a If a sore thumb was an indicator of great quality, <laughs> yeah. <You know, laughs> I mean, yeah. and and there you could sort of come back and say, hey, wait a minute, that's that in itself is the fourth entry of a franchise but yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but with such a gap between the third and the fourth as to basically at that point it becomes an original thing of its own i think i don't i don't um hmm. i didn't i didn't sit down watching it as chapter 4 of the mad max story it
0: was just like well it's kind of a reboot yeah. of max, mad max yeah, in a way exactly. i mean you can't really... But then again, every Mad Max film is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't really have any kind of continuity. They're a bit more like James Bond in that respect. It's like the classic James Bond. It was like. Between one and two, they kind
1: of skip genres as well. Like, you know, Mad Max one is kind of like a revenge drama set 20 minutes in the future. And Mad Max two is like, there's what? There was a nuclear war or something? It's, a, you know, post apocalyptic war movie, you
0: know. Oh, totally different. And then Mad Max three is completely different again. I mean, it's. Um, I think. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think if you look at the state of action movies, I mean, what I mean, you know, who else is making action movies? I mean, James Cameron every t- 10 years. Mm, mm, <laughs> Five years, yeah, you know, I mean, Chris Nolan, you know, Dunkirk is an action movie, yeah, Tenants as well is
1: another
0: sort of, is, I mean, I, even Spielberg, you've got Ready Player
1: One is, is, is mm-hmm. definitely. I think it's, yeah, it's definitely an action movie. I don't
0: see what. Absolutely. um, I mean, I'm trying to think of other, I'm trying to think of other examples in more recently. I mean,
1: I think, I mean, I think the problem maybe is just the dominance of action cinema
0: over every. uh, I don't think it's the dominance of action cinema. I think it's the dominance of fantasy. Yeah. I I think, I think that's the thing is that we're not talking about, you know, action cinema like bomb movies or, you know, I think one of the things that people like about Top Gun is it's, very simple and in a relatable world I don't have to there is that thing about not knowing not having to know and I suspect Top Gun's played much better with it with with older audiences going to the cinema going back to the cinema I mean I think you talk about needing to know other stuff you know like mm. about interconnectedness and all the rest of it or watching a bunch of Disney Plus shows or whatever else I think for the younger audience that's not really an issue because i think they're all that they kind of they're constantly they're, they're constantly in a kind of information soup through their phones and devices so i was talking to my little one this morning which is but she went before sports day <laughs> and she was saying to me, she, no maybe we're talking like, we're talking last night she was up she was up late and she was saying to me so who's the manual manual i was reading about emmanuel macron mm. on my phone it's like he's the president of france isn't he so yeah and i said so you, you know about him she goes yeah and then there was this thing about george floyd and you know the, so we, it just went off on this kind of there was no context necessarily to this but she's like nearly nine and she doesn't have she has a you know a phone that doesn't really work um but she can kind of browse things go on google and see stuff or see stuff through kind of news rail, <laughs> which is a, a default source of news um which is i think quite quite and should be encouraged sure. she can pick all that up mm, mm. So, you know, if the kids are going to go see it on their own, we talk about kids going to see it, these things on their own, you know, in mean, the 13, 14, 15, which is primarily the audience that is going to see this stuff. I think that they are well ahead of that. They, they can they can do their research, you know, that's that's what they do. Yeah. They can go on, they can watch a YouTube like, catch up, you know, of stuff. Yeah. Um, I think the thing is that media exists in many different forms. I think the interesting thing is I think the kind of pr- the precursor to this was what the Wachowskis were trying to do with the Matrix sequels. Because what they did then was well ahead of the curve. And the audience just didn't weren't literate enough mm. in technology. They weren't literate enough in all of those you look at everything that's happened subsequently. They did, you know, they did the like, Animatrix, they did all those comic books, they did the video game, they did the game afterwards that kind of had this whole kind of like dramatic surround that all kind of fed into those sequels. So it was a concept in a way, yeah. that whole transmedia idea. I think if you look at it, that is, that was, they were doing that in 2003 where we were just watching X-Men 2. <laughs> Majority of us were going to see that. And I, I rewatched that at the weekend, X-Men 2. And I think it stands up really, really well, but it looks like a kind of film from another era. It looks like when you watch a GoldenEye or something like that, it's got a kind of grungier kind of, more thrillerish aesthetic is quite moderate in terms of its its visual effects and stuff. I mean that final act in the dam and everything is there's loads of stuff going on and all that. But it's all done it's not spectacle mm. Mm. in the same way. It's not and it's not just kind of empty spectacle. It's spectacle and effects and everything built around a kind of giant sort of set piece. And everything's moving that around. So it's quite modest in its in its sort of what it was trying to do. But I think that what they did in the, in those films, actually those Matrix movies is doesn't really get kind of discussed enough because in terms of the kind of the idea of a kind of world and an idea of a fantasy world, that's kind of embodies cyberpunk and superheroes and kind of, you know, some sort of theological stuff that's going on. Mm. There's a whole range of stuff at work in there. That's kind of far more ambitious than, than a lot of films today. Let's be perfectly honest, Mm. but it, it, the whole thing about the audience having these different access points through different media, you know, they were, they, they were pre kind of like the the ubiquity of like hot, super fast broadband Mm. and smartphones. If the smartphone revolution had happened and those films came out, then maybe that would have had a different effect. But I think what they did then is kind of, that's the kind of root of a lot of the stuff that we're looking at, because what they were doing was what they were comic book movie fans. You know, you, Mm. they, they were, comic book fans they worked in comics before they worked in cinema so a lot of what they were doing was transplanting all that to the to the mainstream but they did it far earlier than anyone else really had even sort of tried to do it i think george lucas was kind of toying with this i mean it's interesting if you remember to go back to when i interviewed rick mccallum all those years ago they were working on that star wars tv show at that mm. point the one that never happened and the idea then would be that you would do 150 or 50 100 episodes or whatever and it would be kind of a and, it, and he would say, well, no, stu- no no, network will pay for it. They were ahead of the time in terms of what they were trying to do. But essentially what they were trying to do was streaming mm. before then and to kind of expand it out into the, these different other kind of media and platforms. So, I mean, I think there have, been, there have been attempts in the past to do it, but they haven't been the right property and it hasn't been the right time. And Marvel is the thing where it just hit. And I don't think you can underestimate with Marvel interesting what would the situation be with marvel if they hadn't been bought by disney i don't think the avengers would have made 1.5 billion dollars because you then got the the full marketing might of the disney corporation behind you you know all the vertical integration that comes with that all the kind of stuff you've got the theme parks you've got the stores you've got all that kind of you know that's where marvel was dominated because of having disney as the kind of the backstop behind it um and it's obviously pushed disney on to even more success um full stop so I think it's but everything ends
1: apropos I mean to to uh, cinema always seems to be lagging about 30 40 50 years behind itself in the sense that you know when when cinema uh, you know uh, first sort of bursts on the scene you've got like one of the dominant genres is westerns and westerns are all based on within living memory you're within 50 60 years of the invention of cinema is when when most westerns are being set and Mm. and there's a there's a whole bunch of novels that 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 start to get uh Mm. get made into films nowadays you know of all those properties only the matrix was an original property Mm. you know everything else i mean including james bond here and top gun mad max obviously but all the Avengers, all the Marvel, all the DC, are all based... Star Wars I guess
0: as well would be the other one, wouldn't it? Star Wars. Yeah, a-
1: absolutely. Thought. And it just comes to a point where you think, okay, if if the new George Lucas, you know, w- is there space for them to sort of put in there? Is there space for Raiders of the Lost Ark? Is there space for a new idea? Like, I mean, Ghostbusters I remember loving that because it was a new idea. It's like, wow, what a great idea that is, and 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 you didn't expect to necessarily live with that idea as a TV series and five different films. You know, what was Dan Harmon from Community would always say: five seasons in a movie. You know, you you wouldn't necessarily get that extrapolation, Um, but I just wonder. Okay, fair enough. Have your five five seasons in the movie, but but can we have a can we have some new source material?
0: Yeah, well, I think that's the that's the that's the trouble, isn't it? It's like where is that that stuff coming from? Some of it's from you know there are comic books that people are adapting. You know, there's I think the I think the problem it reflects more poorly on the fact that the, the cinema in general. I mean, mm. I think if you look at um, Alan Ladd had to take the punt on George Lucas to kind of make Star Wars, you know. Mm. I think there's always I think we I think generally speaking the culture has become more corporatized and kind of more franchised. I mean you just look at the way this works with books. I mean I think we haven't talked about I think the big thing for Marvel the big precursor to Marvel is Harry Potter. Because mm. that broke the mold of the fact that you you made three films didn't you in the past it was always like there's a trilogy you know that's why there's a dark knight trilogy there's a lord of the rings trilogy there's a kind of there's a star wars trilogy that's what you do but but Harry Potter was like it was spread over seven books and we're going to make all those books and we're going to kind of all those kids and we're going to do it like you say like a TV show in a way mm. over those that decade absolutely and it gives the and it gives the corporation years of staking their claim i mean and, and and the big change in 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 culture i mean we go back to the to 2008 i think that's the big change because obviously iron man is a big hit for marvel the idea is they're going to make these these kind of other films That all joined together to the avengers which looks like this ridiculously ambitious (laughs) but looks incredibly modest when we look at it now um but the the success of the dark knight don't underestimate that a billion dollars that changed dc comics that changed the way warner brothers thought about dc Mm. that changed the way that they wanted to be in that kind of business so the idea then is that if harry potter's coming to an end we've got to have another franchise pole kind of factory that we can peg a decade around that's why you get Fantastic Beasts. It's why you get Hobbit spread into three films. It's like we know we can make X amount on these kind of movies, you know, moving ahead. So there's all these kind of failed attempts to do kind of like Justice League before, around the time they were doing The Dark Knight and all this, you know, all these kind of properties, attempts to make films that didn't work. Um, George Miller's Justice League, wasn't it? Mm, I mean, that was the, right. To the try and spin all these other th- sort of things out. Um, I mean, I think they're that's, you know, I think Harry Potter has a huge role to play in the way that this is conceived. I think then, because then DC is seen as a kind of similar silo of franchises that they can do, build a long-term plan around. And then obviously Marvel, the success of Marvel makes that even more kind of permeate through the culture. But I think, you know, look back at um, look at Star Trek. I mean, look at the way that they did. I mean, I think people forget you know the the way that marvel were doing things the way kevin Feige is doing it is what rick berman did with star trek yeah. in the in the 1980s and 90s i mean it's exactly the same and he's a huge star trek fan isn't he and worked with ralph winter who was one of the producers of the star trek films on those x-men films back in the day you know there's a so what i mean what we talk about what um the wachowskis did you also then have to no, all of these things kind of accumulate and create the kind of future, don't they? But if you look at what McAl uh Berman did with those films, you know, the end of the original Star Trek movies, then the spin-off of the next generation, and then doing another two shows while the next generation became movies. And you can argue whether these are successful or not, but whatever. But that was 20 odd years worth of stuff. Mm. In fact, if you go back to the if you go back to when say it starts with Rafa Khan, you know, in eighty-two when does it die is it 2002 2003 with nemesis yeah i think it's early 2000s isn't it so if you want to look at it i mean because really the modern star trek things begins with the ralph it's two it's it's 20 plus just over 20 years um 2002 nemesis yeah so 20 years roughly um and obviously that builds out of the fact you've got this kind of um this successful film that you know the motion picture which is kind of too expensive and all the rest of it but that was there in the late 70s as well so it's a long term sort of process you know that 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 they were doing they're playing a long game and i think that's the thing with Faye. i think the other thing is that they just other studios when we're talking about studios rather than sort of like independent production companies or whatever that You know, how are they going to, you know, there aren't that many properties out there Mm. that lend themselves to this type of sort of blanket bombing approach. Mm. Mm. And I think the crucial thing with Marvel is it's about the Marvel universe. It's not about an individual character. And that has always been true throughout the whole kind of DC's history was always about great creators doing groundbreaking work. That would be Frank Miller on Batman. That would be, um, uh, john byrne on superman that would be graph uh, grant morrison and dave mckean doing arkham asylum alan moore doing the killing joke mm. you know alan frank miller on batman year one with david Mazzucchelli and watchman you know dave uh, alan moore and Dave gibbons doing that you know when they did when they finished off v for vendetta around that time but it's interesting if you look at those um that influx of stuff into the kind of the, the sort of pop culture mix from there a lot of those things kind of begin from like more you know from less from a corporate kind of mindset as well i do think that that is it's not a surprise that marvel borrowed the money to set up marvel studios and do it on their own That you can't underestimate that, that was an independent production company yeah. yeah that gets forgotten about but they took the risk they took the risk and at dc you know warner brothers when they took the risk on chris nolan that was because they had some executives there that still had kind of their feet in the world of cinema that was still very much driven by the role of indie cinema and don't underestimate the role of um, Steven Soderbergh because mm. he got Nolan the job on Insomnia. True, true. And that was, so he was the gatekeeper into that. It was a very different world. You know, the people who've run the studios, I mean, if you look at Warner Bros., I know mean, he used to work for DC and the, the management structure now and the ownership of it is completely different. You know, the fact we're now in a, this, this, you know, Warner Media Discovery, whatever it's called, well, now is a totally different thing and it's all about you know it's all about how much content you can create for the the platforms or whatever else and you know it's they it, it's a different world and i think that that is i don't know whether you can kind of cre- come up with the next big thing you know from their mindset where they are they're not they're not really looking for that they're still looking to kind of revamp reboot you know Re-adapt.
1: I think in a sense the, 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 the way to do it, if you, it wouldn't be so much to, to write a screenplay, but to write a, a series of, of books, you know, I mean, it would be, that's, that's where you would, that's where they're going to go fishing. They're going to go fishing with a property that people already have some sort of, and they can see it. It's there. It's, it's got proven success. Um, you know, or, 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 you know, or comic books or books, irregardless. Listen, James, I, w- I want to talk to you some more because I haven't uh, we haven't even talked about the the dread movies and the various uh, <laughs> the various permutations and Rogue Trooper to be to be coming. So I'm gonna I, we're gonna stop here, but I would definitely love you to come on again and for us to, to speak a bit more about this because I, I I fascinating absolutely fascinating. And well, I mean, well, hopefully it's coherent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm po- positive is as soon as I stop talking, uh, the quality goes up significantly. Uh, um, but before you leave, uh, I do need a recommended book off you—a film book that you would uh, suggest for our for our listeners.
0: The last one I read that I thought was really good was the Paul Hirsch book mm-hmm. about editing. I can't remember it. What's it called? I can't remember the title. I've got it next door. A long
1: time ago in a cutting room far, far away.
0: That's the one. That's. I, I'm not. I mean, there's. That's the last one I read that I really loved and i think he, he and talking about editing i mean i think he kind of like it's really interesting as an editor someone who worked on those um on so so many interestingly different films star like Star Wars, obviously empire strikes back obviously but then things like ferris puller mm, yeah mission impossible and working with then he did those protocols talk about the differences between working with brad bird and working with brian de palma because mm. he worked with brian de palma a lot didn't he mm. i think that's how he got into star wars um because of the Lucas department connection. So, uh, I'd say that one right. once upon a time in a cutting room, well, away, that's a great one. I mean, and I guess if I was to think of another one, maybe Cronenberg on Cronenberg is a favorite of mine. I always thought that's a very interesting of that type of book that they those old Faber and Faber ones that they used to do. I thought it was, yeah. it was one of them. It's interesting because I think Cronenberg is one of the more ever People talk who talks about their own films. I think he's kind of that's he's he's that was that's a, I'd say those two. That, that would be good. Go for the Paul
1: one Yeah, he's 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 a real Cronenberg is a real intellectual and he's a, a very mm. articulate, he, 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 very brilliant at communicating his ideas. I remember going to the press conference for a Dangerous Method, which I think is an underrated film, but not one of his best Pretty films. But his press conference was was better than the film. I mean, I, and I'm not I'm not slagging <laughs> off the film at all. But the press conference was fascinating. It was like you
0: know I interviewed him on a round table once with uh, Robert Pattinson when they had done Cosmopolis. Right, and he was very. I, mean, I didn't have very long with him, but he was he was great. Mm-hmm the man's, yes, man speaks
1: the firm. man speaks in paragraphs it's amazing <laughs> brilliant james thanks so much for for agreeing to talk to me and uh, thanks for those recommending books and thanks just for shedding yeah i feel like i've i've really learned a lot about about um about the franchise the, the state of cinema at the moment and especially popular entertainment cinema hopefully <laughs> That was my conversation with James. I hope you enjoyed it as much as, uh, as as I did. I had a great time talking to him. I really felt that I was learning something as we went through with lots of observations there which were uh, which changed my perspective. I have to say made me look at things a little bit bit differently. I think as well the the Thor love and the thunder um, sort of reception has been weirdly mixed up with this idea that um, uh, Tycho. Uh, Waititi has has somehow fallen from grace. Uh so it was kind of interesting to just talk about the film on its own merits rather than in the twitter sphere of um of the current backlash forward lash 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 that that is going on lashes of lashes there all that remains is for me to thank james for uh for talking to me and i can't wait to to sort of finish that conversation thank you also to elliot atkins for the music thank you to ali harwood for the art and thanks to you dear listener um hopefully uh you will talk next week